Charting History, Season 1, Episode 3, The Pacific Voyage of HMS Dolphin. Hello and welcome back to the Charting History Podcast. My name's Graham and I'm here today with Will Manthorpe and we'll be talking about the voyages of HMS Dolphin in the Age of Discovery under the command of Samuel Wallace in the years 1766 to 1768. Hi Will, how are you doing? Hello, yeah good, thank you for having me, it's really good to be, uh, to be on here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, Will is a secondary school teacher and, and post-16 teacher as well actually, aren't you Will? Yeah. Um, in history history and politics and will also has a background as a history researcher with a master's in maritime history from the university of exeter specializing mostly i'd say in the age of exploration and the navy but you range quite widely out of that too don't you will sometimes yeah quite often when people say what is your specialism i would instinctively say exploration um an all manner of different voyages i can i have researched in the past so expeditions of James Cook, obviously the nice easy one to go with. But uh, in my undergraduate years, I did look at the voyage of uh, George Vancouver to the North Pacific Ocean. Mm. Um, but then particularly while doing my master's, I was able to really focus on a maritime environment. So I covered the voyages of Sammy Wallace, but also I was able to undertake a few other different projects as well. So the actions of Britain in the Mediterranean during the war against Napoleon, particularly their relationship with Sicily, was something I really was able to delve into. Um, but then also the early diversity, I suppose you could say, of the Navy in this particular time. So the mm. time frame has always kind of remained the same. So very much a post Seven Years' War, so 1760, uh, 1762-63, usually. And then I'd say my area kind of ends pretty much um by around 1808 1809 so yes yeah, it's, it's kind of that 50 60 year kind of area and we're also i want to talk a little bit less about this later but you incorporate your original research and your expertise into your teaching and that's something that i really want to hear a little bit more about so we're going to get to that later on but first let's move on with the age of well, sometimes called the age of exploration or the age of discovery uh, could you tell us a bit about the period before we dive into this specific voyage, Will? Absolutely. So in there's kind of two ways, two different kind of periods that are, I think, worth highlighting, particularly from Britain's perspective. Prior to the Seven Years' War, there were voyages um, from Britain sent out. They, they would circumnavigate the, the world, but quite often they would have more of a, not necessarily a scientific exploration um, intentions. It would be more about disrupting Spanish trade around the world. So, as as many people know, so Spain certainly had quite a lot of possessions, it, both in the Americas, but also in the East Indies, so Indonesia, places like that. So, it was actually more about disrupting Spanish trade. And then, even going even further back in time, you have the voyages of Francis Drake, Sorter Raleigh, um, described more as privateers and well, to the Spanish pirates despite sailing around the world, were they actually doing much exploring? That's kind of more for uh, someone, your own interpretation, really. I, I, <laughs> I wouldn't describe them as explorers. Um, some people may do, I don't. I was actually teaching my undergraduates on Francis Drake just yesterday, and it was really interesting to hear their perspectives on what they thought about him. I sort of opened with, um, you know, what do we know about him around the room? And some of them said, oh, he was, you know, sort of a great explorer, a great discoverer. And then we started talking about, OK, so what did other people think of him? Because, of course, the Spanish would have had a very different opinion. They thought the man was a pirate. So it's, it's really interesting to hear you chart this development towards what we think of as scientific exploration, which I would agree comes in so much later on. Yeah, indeed. And on the topic of I'm, I'm we can talk about more about it later on, but regarding Francis Drake in particular, I actually had the opportunity last year to teach uh, my students while I was training about Francis Drake and I posed to them essentially that same question you, you did yourself about was Francis Drake was he a pirate or was he an explorer and but I was I was posing it to a group of year 10 students as people who may have heard about him but probably didn't know that much and that's absolutely fine what was really encouraging uh, in that lesson was I was able to really kind of stir up a very lively debate about him where I actually was able to split the class that there were people in the class um, who 
some believed he was indeed an explorer, while others said no, he was very much just a privateer. He was simply just going to attack the Spanish. What was actually quite amusing about that is that, so because I was nearing the end of my training, uh, I was kind of given more autonomy in my teaching where the, the class teacher would actually step outside and he kind of like would let me go solo. He was actually in a room next door. He had the doors open, so in case of any issues, he can come and assist me. But he he overheard the debate that I was able to generate. Yeah, and he he's at, he was head of department. He's uh, quite a, um, a Tudor era um, historian himself. He was he was I found it quite amusing how I was able to really energize the class and his discussion. They were really like all in. Um, mm. Providing different points of view is it's really good to have. It's a really good debate to have for people because you can really make arguments for both sides. But I am firmly on the he was indeed he was more of a, a privateer, not an adventurer. Fall down that, that side too myself. Yes, but um, sorry, just to, but return to your point though. So the second period is after the Seven Years' War. So the Seven Years' War, in essence goes relatively well for Britain. So the, the Spanish are forced to allow Britain to send their ships into the Pacific Ocean, whereas prior, the, they were very protective of their possessions in the Americas and didn't want anyone else, uh, primarily Britain, um, venturing to this uh, relatively unknown region. But after the Seven Years' War, the, the influence they were able to exert um, really helped. What also helped matters as well is the new king during the war, Britain acquires a new king. We have George III, who's very scientifically minded. He he often, when these voyages launch, and all these major voyages of this period, so Wallace, Cook, Vancouver, Flinders, all these voyages all happened during the reign of King George III. And he was very keen to receive updates. Um, he wanted to know what was, what was going on, what were they finding. And I feel this is what really kind of energizes this pursuit of scientific exploration and then from there on in, we start to see explorers really pushing the boundaries, you could say, where you've got James Cook on his second expedition going further south than any human had ever gone before, uh, towards Antarctica, towards the South Pole, in search of the southern continent. And then in the turn of the century, so heading into the 1800s, you've also got voyages going north. So you've got the expeditions of... John Franklin, they're probably the, the most prolific of this period, where he does both overseas but also overland expeditions mm. to find Northwest Passage. by the Franklin expedition. Absolutely. Sorry. No, no, no worries. It's, <laughs> I love them so it's much. A great, it's a really great story. And even just, um, there's a really good book I read last year. In fact, I've actually read it a few times. Um, Erebus by Michael Palin. Mm. Where it talk, it's more about the ship rather than Franklin, uh, because it also talks about her voyages to the south with um, James Clark Ross. It's mm. absolutely captivating. So, you know, the, the, the 1800s is very much an era of polar and Arctic exploration. Um, and it's, you know, try, both trying to reach the North Pole and the South Pole, which then you enter the 20th century. And it's a case where they do finally, I, I do know what, this is, this is indeed going a bit more beyond my expertise, but I believe the Norwegians were the first to the South Pole. Um, yes. yes. Uh, and then the British are very shortly after they reach it. So that's where you, it, but it comes a lot more about the science, really trying to coast mm. um, charts the, the world around them, which is very much unknown. I've really started to fill in the blank edges of the map. So we're kind of fitting HMS Dolphin into the middle here now of, are we looking at a shift from this earlier, more colonial, imperial-minded exploration to the arguably still imperialistic, but more scientific Let's, let's try and place the dolphin voyage. So it's 1766 now uh, within this chronology. So with these voyages, while I would certainly describe them as being more scientific, they did indeed have imperialistic intentions as well. There's because you, you kind of, the government would want to have a game out of it as well. And in fact, you remember you and I, we kind of, we collaborated on an article a couple of years ago where we were yes. discussing this. Um, so with the voyage of the dolphin, Essentially, they were trying to find quicker ways to reach various different um, points in the world. More so, with with um, more northern voyages, it was they were with the intention to find the Northwest Passage, for example. It was so that they could try to find a much quicker way to reach the Pacific Ocean uh, and also yeah. bypass Spanish possessions. In regards to the Dolphin, 
it was also trying to simply just find resources where you know make contact with different uh, societies because they were they were certainly aware of polynesians um, at this time because the dolphin was actually this voyage was the dolphin's second circumnavigation she did actually sail around the world 1764 to 66 under john byron mm. uh the turnaround was almost immediate and they decided to send the dolphin back out but there was certainly there are very much indeed scientific intentions as well um so the 1769 you had the transit of venus uh, scheduled to take place that's the prediction when it's going to happen um but they needed to find a idyllic place to observe it and quite often i would i like to describe wallace's voyage as a precursor to james cook's first voyage because with cook his first expedition on the endeavor he is actually in possession of wallace's report uh, of everywhere he went what he did what he observed uh, and he essentially follows the same journey the same path uh, he goes so he goes down south um, instead of going through the, the Straits of Magellan like Wallace does Cook goes around Cape Horn but he mm. makes his way to Tahiti because it is it is noted by Wallace that Tahiti would be a good place to make this uh, observation of transit of Venus so that is where Cook is, Cook is ordered to go there and he does indeed uh, complete that uh, mission as as directed uh, so it's very similar very similar route and Wallace is very much a precursor to allow it to allow it to happen. I feel if it wasn't for that voyage, there was a foundation, it was a building blocks to allow Cook to succeed on his voyage as well. So we have this precursor to the Cook voyage. Is this uncharted territory though for the dolphin at this time? Because we're going via Tahiti, and you mentioned that of course Byron has previously circumnavigated as well. How much of this is uncharted waters for the British? So particularly for the British, it indeed is very, it is very uncharted. So Tahiti was previously unknown to Europeans. There was absolutely a very lively, very uh, significant indigenous population on Tahiti at this time. Mm. But to the Europeans, prior to Wallace, there was no realization that Tahiti existed. So that was certainly one of the major discoveries for him. With the voyage of Byron, that was more of a trying to find routes across the Pacific. So it was, that was a very speedy voyage, the first dolphin voyage where he was trying to uh, simply just get across the Pacific. There, there wasn't actually a great deal of exploring on the first voyage. The second one does certainly, there's a lot more, uh, I, a great number of islands and archipelagos are sighted on the second voyage. Mm. The first one, they were very much more heading into the dark. And um, if you'll permit me, I do know as well that on these voyages for exploration to help as an incentive for the crew, especially the, 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 the deckhands, the sailors themselves, they would be given bonuses because they knew they knew they were getting themselves into. They knew they'd be going on these long voyages that they could be gone for years at a time. They're going to be putting themselves in a great more at risk, at danger than uh, other missions they could be assigned to. So quite often, uh, sailors on board these expeditions would be paid very well. Uh, officers likewise the commander would often get promoted in advance so john byron was actually promoted to commodore prior to his departure now with the second voyage wallace was essentially hoping for similar and there's a rumor going around that he was going to likewise be promoted and with that the crew would also receive a nice bonus nice financial incentive however what actually happens is that the voyage of byron was deemed to be more not necessarily an emergency, but rather it was it was a necessity that they had to send out, and because they didn't have any knowledge of what they were going to find, right? Apart from a few scattered previous voyages, George Anson goes around the world in 1740, and his his voyage is likewise quite a catastrophe because he sets out with uh, I believe it's four ships Anson sets mm. out in. He returns with one. One. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, it was more about trying to disrupt Spanish trade, uh, disrupt their treasure fleets from transiting from India, uh, across the Pacific Ocean rather than exploration. Anyway, so with the second voyage, because they now have some degree of information, uh, they also have veterans from this first voyage traveling on the second. 
including the captain of the second ship. So the, the Dolphin doesn't go alone. There's also a second ship, HMS Swallow, under the command of Philip Carteret. Carteret was indeed on the first voyage, so he's also a veteran of traveling across the Pacific. So therefore, the Admiralty actually do not provide any incentive to the sailors. Uh, and Wallace has also denied any promotion as well because they didn't deem it to be as important because they had this, they had the resources to support them. A bit limited, but that is how the Admiralty viewed it. I'm sort of, I want to lead you into a broader discussion of the experiences of the seafarers on these voyages. Um, but perhaps starting with how you think they felt about that then? Because obviously this is a real, if you'll permit, a very forced pun it's a real endeavor of endurance this so they are going out around the world to places that people in you know in their organization in britain don't really know very well very dangerous as you say previous voyages have come back with high mortality rates how do you think they felt about this you know what, that's an excellent question it's something that i've tried to spend a lot of time investigating and the short answer is it's actually very difficult to to tell to to, to research this but some inroads have certainly been made. In short, there was certainly a lot of struggle um, when looking at some of the journals written um, by the crew members themselves. You kind of do start to gain a bit of an insight. Um, actually, so in the 1790s, 1792, there was a medical essay published by a man called Dr. Jonathan Trotter, and he coined the term scorbutic nostalgia. And essentially what he, what he hypothesized is that when a particular ship engaged in exploration, once they had exhausted their fresh food supplies, the, the um, melancholy that kind of sets in uh, upon crew members, especially the lower deck sailors whose uh, who rations would probably be impacted the most, what it would kind of, the impact it would kind of have on them as well, once they're so far from home, is they would, they would drop, some of them would drop into a state of depression where they, he would observe we made made comments that sailors would be longing for home. They would miss the fresh, fresh uh, uh, grass, the the home environments, all the home comforts that they would they would have had, um, and the realization that in fact they're on this uh, rocking world, crammed into into a ship. Uh, particularly in relation to Pacific exploration, you know, no means mistaken that the Pacific Ocean is is huge. When the dolphin emerges into the Pacific Ocean in 1767, so she exits the Straits of Magellan, and it takes the dolphin about a month for any land is sighted. So that's roughly 20, it's about 28 days, 29 days of no land sighted. So they can only, the only thing they can really do, the weather, they're quite fortunate, the weather's not actually too bad for them. Um, but it's a case of consistently no land sighted. So there's nothing to do apart from just the, the, the ship's logs are very minimal in their detail because there's nothing to really say. Yeah. But for the sailors, it's the, the, the monotony of their routine mm. would most indeed uh, sort of get to them. But what I also did find quite interesting is every now and again, incidents that took, that took place, which you can really gain an insight into how they must have been feeling. So one particular incident, that I, I think is worth highlighting. So I mentioned a little while ago that the expedition contained two ships. You had the Dolphin and then you had the Swallow. The Swallow was a sloop, while the Dolphin was a fifth-rate frigate. So a much smaller vessel. Much smaller. And her commander, Philip Carter, the commander of the Swallow, actually wrote to the Admiralty prior to his departure because he was very confused as to why he had been assigned to this ship. And he wrote to the Admiralty and he described it as the the worst ship, if not the very worst ship, um, in the fleet. Um, he described it as being a very poor state of repair, and this would be demonstrated time and time again when the dolphin would continuously have to slow down, wait to allow her to catch up or fix. Mm. Uh, so her rudder goes a few times, has to be replaced. Um, the dolphin is actually copper sheaved. This new technology, new innovation is developed where the hull is sheathed in copper to protect it from shipworm. And degradation. The swallow is not so fortunate and she does not have any kind of protection. So the general condition of the ship is very poor. And she's very slow. Um, Carter consistently he begs Wallace, he says, please let me turn home because I am not on a ship that is 
capable of sailing across the Pacific Ocean, but it's just not going to be safe. Um, but I have a lot of expertise, so maybe at least let me come on board your ship and I can guide you because you're, you're, you're new to this, whereas I've been across before. Yeah, he knows the area out of all of them, right? Precisely. He's probably one of the most knowledgeable veterans on board. Uh, however, Wallace is very much... He's a man, he's, a, he's, he's by the book. That's probably how I'd describe him. He's been described as other historians. He's a good, Wallace is a good commander. Good, uh, he looks after his men. He, know, you know, he knows how to sail. He looks after his men. But he was a very good explorer. That's how he's, he's not creative. No, indeed. Precisely. He will kind of stick more to his, if, if that's what his orders say to do, that's what he'll do. And he won't divert from that. So he says, mm. he says to Carter, says, no, I need you to do, this is what the orders say. This is what I need you to do. Uh, so unfortunately, so Carteret relents. He's been given his orders, so off they go. They enter the Straits of Magellan in December of 1666. It takes them about four months to transit the the Straits. This is predominantly because they are con- uh, the dolphin is constantly having to stop and wait for the for the swallow. Uh, very slow, as I mentioned. Anyway, so fast forward to April. This is when they emerge and. The, the the story goes is that the dolphin shot past the swallow um, at tremendous speed, and then before you know it, from Carter's point of view, he just, he says that the swallow just disappears out of sight, which is gone. And the two ships never actually see each other again. Um, they they then conduct their own voyages. Um, and so there's two points of view to the story. So Carter makes a, the accusation that he had. Not only had he been deserted, but he also made the accusation that it had been a pre-calculated desertion by his commanding officer. He believed that it was actually Wallace's intention all along to desert him because the reason why he believes this is because there had been no pre-planned rendezvous point beyond the Straits. Ah. So where are they going to meet? Of course, they have no means of communicating. Um, so that's that one. And also, the other interesting point is when you're engaged in these voyages for exploration, you, your ship will carry a great deal of supplies, not only for yourself, but also to trade with any indigenous populations that they might encounter. Uh, Wallace, on his ship, takes all of them. He has all the, all the um, trade goods, so we're talking ingots of precious metals, toys, weapons, alcohol, things like that. He keeps all of it. He doesn't give any of it to Carter. So Carter has nothing. Almost as if he's intending to do it all for himself and he doesn't really doesn't really care. This, this is, of course, a quite a damning accusation. A serious allegation. Yeah. A very serious allegation. And it, wasn't, it was indeed investigated. Upon their return, it was investigated. And Wallace defended himself. He said in, in his log, he defended himself by saying the reason why he left him behind, because he said the prevailing winds were so strong and because of the stormy conditions in the Straits, it would have been too dangerous for him to turn around. He simply just had to carry on. And to him, that's essentially the end of the matter. He just, he just says, no, I had no choice. I had to carry on. And that's it. The reason why I mention this story, though, is that I, when researching this, I, you can certainly feel a real sense of sympathy, empathy for Carter, because he, this entire time, even before they depart... Before they depart England, he is having an absolutely miserable time. He's assigned to this ship, which is not in a great state. He's, he's begging to for the Admiralty to reconsider, and he's time and time again rejected. Uh, he's constantly trying to catch up to the other ship. Mm. Uh, and then ultimately, he is just then abandoned, effectively. He's on his own, uh, and he has to make the crossing by himself. It's very fortunate that he, he is indeed a very capable commander, a very capable navigator. Um, however, he does, unfortunately, um, he does very nearly die. So a lot of the officers on board the Swallow do contract scurvy, and a lot of them do come close to death. And it's certainly, certainly quite concerning what would have happened if indeed he did succumb to scurvy, uh, how the ship would indeed would have got home. They would have very much been stranded. So he was facing a very demanding challenge and he was very much on his own so you kind of have to feel you feel a great deal of empathy for him and how to go go through this but what i can also say in terms of from the from the crew themselves the the lower deck sailors they seem to be a lot more enthusiastic it's not that necessarily the right word but the the relationship that carter was able to maintain with his ship's company uh he was certainly very supportive and empathetic to them as well he was actually quite light on punishments that it was actually one case of a few sailors deserting at Madeira on the outward voyage, 
they return. He demands an explanation, and in the end, uh, doesn't actually. He he pardons them, and they receive their punishment. And it does mm. appear it's noted that Carteret doesn't actually have any problems with discipline for the remainder of the voyage. Um, it's, it does appear that there's a great deal of respect and confidence in their commander. So the lower deck sailors do they go about their job. They do the best job they can to in order for the for the voyage to at least be successful and return home. But it's no doubt that the challenges they faced. When they started to encounter European outposts uh, in the East Indies, predominantly um, Dutch outposts, they receive a very hostile welcome. So even even their fellow Europeans are not too happy to see them and they are actually attacked by the townspeople. So there's a lot of challenges they're having to face. But unfortunately, that's kind of where the limitations of our understanding really start to show because there isn't really too much. You kind of have to draw a lot of your own conclusions of how they must have felt particularly being so far away from home with no ability to, to communicate with anyone beyond their ship. And the other thing as well, it's also important to mention in terms of trying to research this, is that these voyages of exploration, any written material, so ship's logs, would be retained by the Admiralty upon their return because these voyages were deemed to be of utmost secrecy because, they, of course, they didn't want other European nations, primarily Spain, from finding out what they were doing. So it's it's actually really difficult to find out because um, there's 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 the necessity by the Admiralty to keep a secret, but then also you know you have to think about the literacy skills of those on boards. There would have been those that could read and write, but how many that could, or how many even fought to retain records, yeah, um, is is uncertain. The best source though to really understand it is there's the ship's master for HMS Dolphin, George Robinson. So he's a master of the Dolphin. I've described his journal, personal journal, is probably the best record we have uh, of this voyage because he, the detail he goes into, he is able to really capture the mood of the crew in particular, of how they feel. And quite often, the main thing that kind of drives them is, is when they sight land. Because when right. they sight land, they're able to replenish their supplies, they're able to go, go aboard, and particularly at Tahiti, when they actually start to encounter um, indigenous populations. So having that human contact is really kind of rejuvenates their spirits. And Robertson is very good at capturing that, as well as also his, his, own, his own kind of mood as well, because quite often uh, he, disparages, he, gets, he gets quite irritated at Wallace's decisions, because as I say, he was regarded as good commander, not a good explorer, and it seems that there's a few... Uh, opportunities that Wallace decides to pass by because it's not in the letter of his orders, so he carries on. Uh, he so he actually misses discoveries altogether. So if land, if some land is sighted in the far distance, he orders the ship to carry on and instead of diverting course. Um, really is by the book, this man. Very by the book, um, but he still is able to. You know, he is it's still a very competent and. He does indeed enjoy a great deal of success. And, and most importantly, he brings everyone home with very minimal casualties. Mm. I believe I remember correctly. So it's a two-year voyage, uh, two, two years and one month. And I want to say it's a total of about five fatalities. That's actually incredibly impressive, particularly given not only, as you say, the length of the voyage, but the reasons that they were sailing into at this time I mean, that the risk of um what they would have termed tropical diseases certainly on the route home passing through southeast asia and such must have been incredibly high absolutely and interestingly uh if i was to break down those fatalities more so it's about five or six it's absolutely i can say with confidence it's a very minute number um a good proportion was actually due to accidents as well so you'd have uh, a couple a few for accidents i believe one through tropical disease and then the rest were scurvy um, so no more than about six. Similarly as well on the swallow. So as I say, so by this point, the swallow and the dolphin are conducting their own journeys. And despite there being a number of cases of scurvy on the swallow, so the swallow does suffer more, but um, Carter is actually still able to bring the majority of his crew home. And if you draw comparisons, I mentioned a while ago now about the voyage of George Anson, where he sets out with about four ships and returns with one. It's certainly a very significant contrast in how um, the physical health of the crew is, for the most part, maintained. With the mental health 
um, and the psychological aspect, you have to take a bit of, so you say, creative liberties. You kind of have to make your own kind of conclusions based on the factors. And if their health has been maintained, then you can to kind of make the assumption that's, that the mental health is okay. They would, they've certainly would have had a lot of human contacts on the voyage. So mm. um, yeah, they weren't totally isolated, but there is certainly indeed large periods of isolation that they had to endure, which most certainly would have impacted them psychologically as well. I'm struck by the the uncertainty, I think. Um, you touched on it a few times of these long periods without land. Of course, not entirely rare for a sailor, in even the mercantile sailor or a naval sailor, across the Atlantic, for example, to go for many weeks without sight of land. But the uncertainty, I think, is something that strikes me, where you'd be sailing not knowing that you would definitely find land at the other end. Indeed. So, yes, you mentioned about crossing, yeah, crossing the Atlantic. You, you, they, would, they would plot a course. They would know, they would have an estimate of the journey. They'd know where they're going. Uh, crossing the Atlantic is essentially something that's routine. But as you say, yeah, with the Pacific, in these um, earlier voyages, they didn't really know what they, what they would find. So sighting these islands and the Pacific Ocean is... You know, don't you don't really need to highlight it. it is it is huge. So so to to, to happenstance upon previously unknown island, you know, it's it's a case of finding a needle in a haystack. The fact that you come across mm. Tape Tahiti, which is certainly a very small island, for them to sim to, to just come across it is a, a phenomenal stroke of luck. Not only that, but the fact that it was an island that was inhabited with a very active society of uh, Polynesians who while the initial reception the recept the, the reception they receive at Tahiti is very violent, to put it directly. But they are then able to establish friendly relations. Um and they actually end up spending it's about a month they spend it uh enjoying the more friendly reception from the islanders. Can we talk a bit actually about this interaction on Tahiti? So you mentioned that it was initially violent and then uh turns friendlier over time to a more sort of uh initially mutually beneficial relationship I, I don't think we have time right now to talk about what happens later on but at this time i think as you say both groups find some common ground but can you talk us through how that develops so the arrival at uh, tahiti so for context they arrive into the pacific ocean in april first land is sighted in may it's about june that's when tahiti is sighted um they arrive quite early in the morning and it's noted in the journal by Robertson that there was the visibility was almost nil. Uh, there was a very strong mist as they arrived into the bay. Uh, so they couldn't see anything. So they, they, they knew they had arrived at land, but they, they couldn't see what was around them. As the morning advanced, the mist started to clear. Suddenly, they found themselves surrounded by hundreds, possibly thousands of islanders who had all mm. turned out at this very strange new site that has just arrived. Um, because as I say, no Europeans had ever been here before. The the dolphin was the first time that Tahitians had ever seen a ship anything like this at all. So it's a very the the initial sighting of each other. It's it's one of those uh, what kind of what do we do now? Uh, what 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 is this behemoth that's just arrived in our in our island? Mm. So what actually happens next? It's it's uncertain what's the catalyst, what the trigger was for this to start. But the Tahitians, they on their canoes, they row out to the ship. You have hundreds more on the beach watching, women and children watching on the beach. And then the men, they sail, they row out to the ship. And armed with spears, slings, and uh, bow and arrows, suddenly a volley is let loose upon the ship. Wallace decides to, in turn, not only fire back, but he actually orders the cannons to fire grape shot. Grape shot. In grape shot. And it's actually what probably one of the most recorded parts of the voyage. In fact, actually, uh, anyone who's interested, if they were to uh, Google, just simply look up the dolphin's arrival into Tahiti, there is actually a sketch that you can find, uh, which will show, it will, you can quite plainly see the dolphin surrounded and the, the moment that's the cannons uh, fire and the casualties they must have inflicted, we can only assume a heavy huge numbers. I, huge numbers. Cool. I, I have no definitive number, um, but we can make the safe assumption it was, and it, it drove them back. Of course, this is utterly superior technology. 
what else can you do apart from flee? And that's what they did. Mm. This is the really bizarre thing. The next day, um, it's simply just recorded that they made contact again and they were able to establish friendly relations. Now, it's possible to make the assumption, to, make the, to theorize that the um, Tahitians probably accepted, they acknowledged that whoever these people are, their technology is far superior to our own. So therefore, it would be foolish to, to try that again. And what quite quickly happens, the friendly relations are established, and then they just they, they start trading. Um, mm. So the, the crew starts to you know, we, we have these goods to give you. And in return, they're able to get food, fresh water. Now, what I also want to mention is that there's a particular story which I discovered this quite early on. Uh, as is a bit of a is a bit of a uh, PG story. So if you want to edit this out, it's fine. But <laughs> no, it's, no. I know it's what you're going to talk about. <laughs> yes. So essentially, what what the crew quite quickly realise is that in exchange for it's iron in particular that the Tahitians like. They, um, whether they had it before, I don't know, but they were really captivated by iron. Uh, to a point, it, it became iron itself, little iron ingot. It became currency, mm. and the islanders would offer their women in exchange for the iron uh, for for sexual services, um, and it became a very prolific trade. It, uh, as I say earlier, they spent about a month on the island, and it just became the, something that the crew actively engaged in. Mm. Now, here's here's the rather amusing part: is that it got to a point that the crew of the dolphin actually started extracting the iron nails from the superstructure of the ship. So badly to a point that the, the, the ship was on the real verge of falling apart because so many iron nails had been removed that the superstructure <laughs> had actually been jeopardized. So, uh, and it's actually noted, uh, I remember reading the story when I first started researching this project, I thought, oh, that's, yeah, that couldn't have happened. But then it's actually acknowledged both by Robertson, but also by Wallace in his own uh, log as well. How he, he only mentions it in passing, but he does mention, he says that he uh, has to get really strict with his crew and make sure that um, uh, he denies a lot of people from leaving the ship and people are checked and ensuring that no more nails are being removed from the ship itself. Mm. So it, it almost became a very real possibility that uh, the ship might have actually fallen apart. And then just to kind of finish it all off as well regarding this, about six months later, so they stay on the island for a month and then they carry on their way. They, they carry on in a westward direction. A French explorer by the name of Bougainville mm. is carrying out a somewhat similar voyage. He's about six months behind. He also arrives at Tahiti about uh, around September, September, October 1767. He arrives in Tahiti and he, is, he essentially has a very similar experience. Cook comes to Tahiti as well, as I mentioned at the start. And what Cook observes is that the island is infested with syphilis. Mm. And it's, it's a rather ongoing debate of who, which, which European nation introduced this uh, sexual disease to the island. Was it the British or was it the French? But what is also interesting to remark, though, that um, Bougainville did note that he was unaware, of course, that the British had already been to the island. He assumed he was the first. But he did note, though, that the Tahitians, when they saw his ship, the way they acted, he got a much friendlier welcome immediately. Mm. And it's most likely because the, the arrival of the dolphin, of course, this is only six months earlier, they would recognize the similar, you know, the technology, the ship, and it probably influenced how they acted. And they knew not to, you know, they don't see the big guns. And it certainly shaped how they would have um, welcomed these new group of Europeans to the island as well. So they, it's certainly a very dramatic time on the island. But they were certainly well welcomed. The Queen of Tahiti um, took her; she was certainly very fond. And on her on the final night before the dolphin departed, she actually she slept on the beach by the ship because um, she didn't want them to leave. Mm. Um, and it's experiences like that which speak of mental health, which would have certainly rejuvenated the sailors. Uh, a bit of like R and R, I suppose you could say, kind of really give them a bit of a reset, a bit of a refresh. And so the remainder of the voyage, then traveling through the Pacific and outwards, would you be able to speak a little bit about that and the route home? There isn't actually too much more to say after, particularly for the dolphin. I would actually describe it as being relatively uneventful past that point. So they ca they complete their transition. They arrive into to the East Indies and they arrive into Batavia, 
which is the, uh, the regional capital for the Dutch East Indies. And they're, they're given, so now they're essentially back in the, the sphere of European empires. So they receive a very warm welcome by the Dutch and they give it opportunity just to replenish, refuel and carry on the way. They make another stop in a Cape of Good Hope. They make another stop and again, another Dutch possession. So it's just a case of just more, shall we say, regular, more normal kind of... Mm, uh, far more charted waters. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, and then they make their journey back to back to England. The Swallow has continues a very rough journey. So as I say, a lot of the crew, including the captain, do suffer from scurvy. Mm. One of the principal navigators of the Swallow, unfortunately, he dies. He does succumb to scurvy and he dies. Um, they also then put into the Dutch East Indies, but they arrive at a different port. They arrive at a place called uh, Salibius. The Dutch there are, as I mentioned earlier, they're a lot more hostile. And in fact, they, the townspeople attack the ship. They, well, they attack the crew and they attack the ship. And they're, they're very, it's why they were is not sure. It's, it's even though Britain and the Dutch have generally had good relations, it could be more of a case of they were not keen to see uh, another European ship perhaps encroaching on their trade territory, I suppose you could say. Um, so it's certainly not a very, not a very pleasant trip, but they, they uh, persevere and they carry on. But because of the slower speed and their own challenges, we're talking 1769 by the time uh, the Swallow returns. So it's a year later. Three years out. It's an incredibly long time. Three years out. And what's actually really remarkable for the Swallow is that they transit the Pacific with only one, they only stop once. So the Swallow crossed the Pacific independently in 246 days with only one adequate stop for replenishment and repair. So this alone is an absolute record feat of endurance, which even you know, historians have described, you know, sufferings. It's, it's, it's crossing the Pacific. It's, it's enough to destroy a man. Mm. And the fact that the, the, this uh, inadequate ship was able to do so uh, is certainly quite phenomenal. So they, they return into the Atlantic and then near the Northwood journey back home. And they're actually, they encounter a French explorer I want to say, I believe it is actually Bougainville, also on his homeward voyage. And they, the two ships actually, they cross bows. They actually do, um, Carter actually goes aboard and meets with the French explorer. Um, and what's actually quite amusing is that Carter is a little bit confused, a bit confused of what, what, yeah, who are you? What's going on? Actually, uh, Bougainville actually knew all about him. He knew about the voyage and he knew about who he was and that they were separated. And it was just a... Uh, a, a final little encounter before he then finally returns home himself. What are the chances as well? Particularly, yeah, especially at sea, to, to actually encounter each other is certainly mm. very remote. But beyond that, um, once, yeah, once the once you're back in, shall we say, familiar territory, it, it kind of returns more to routine. They know where they are. Yeah, the pressure is off. Pressure's off. Yeah, it's just a simple case of just getting home by that point. So I suppose there concludes the story of the Wallace expedition on the Dolphin. We've got a little bit of time left, and I'm curious also to talk about how you might incorporate something like this into your teaching, obviously your job as a teacher, teaching ages uh, from 11 up to 17, I think, is it? Correct. Uh, so how would you go about interpreting this kind of story for a teaching environment? Well, I suppose the first thing I can probably start with is that it's certainly very well known by both my colleagues and my students that... Uh, naval history, maritime history is very much my area of expertise. Mm. Um, so, in terms of actually incorporating this content, with uh, so year eight, the year eight curriculum highly involves um, it's, it's the early modern world. So, um, probably teaching that year group is where I'm my strongest because the content knowledge I have is so much stronger. One of their first units was actually covering. British Empire, the, the inquiry question we uh, put out was about whether or not the British Empire was it a force for good or was it bad. Um, and I was actually able to talk about the story of the dolphin. Of course, mm. I had to really cut it down, mostly because to make it suitable for the age group, but also just because uh, I had very limited space of time. But I, I was able to kind of provide them with a very shortened story of the dolphin, the purposes of why they went, what happened. I talked about the hostile reception um, at Tahiti. And what I certainly noticed is that students enjoy a story. If you yeah. can tell them a story that's really captivating, uh, and they don't actually have to do it. All you have to do is just listen. The the interest you can you can generate is fantastic. And what I actually found afterwards is that 
they would actually were asking me lots of questions. I actually wanted to know more. Um, and it's just, it's you know, brilliant. And for, for something I knew a lot about, I was more than happy to, uh, to talk about this. Mm. Similar to this, I've even had opportunities to use other bits of research in my lessons. So steering away from exploration, I was even able to teach when teaching about the slave trade and resistance of slaves. I did a lesson on the career of John Perkins. So for those who mm-hmm. don't know, Perkins was the first black man in the Royal Navy to reach the rank of post captain. While there had been other instances of black men becoming uh, midshipmen, one or two lieutenants, Perkins was the first man to actually to excel, have a very successful career in terms of, of actions and reach the rank of post captain. But he actually goes down as someone who's really not remembered. No one really is someone who's just not mentioned whatsoever. But he's mm. a really good example, as uh, as described by historians, resisting the routinization of slavery by having this very successful career despite the slave trade taking place. And I've had the opportunity to actually teach students about this. And even colleagues would say to me as well, they would actually use my material. So in schools, it's quite common that if you're teaching a lesson on something you know a lot about, it's very common for teachers to share out that material and you know, mm. ease the burden for their colleagues. And other teachers in my department, both when I was training, also now in my current post would uh, I, I would share with them these stories and this material that I've generated because it's something different and it comes from someone who knows a lot about it and they'll likewise tell these stories as well to their own students too. You mentioned that um, you find your students really uh, gain a lot from stories from a narrative within your teaching. What kind of themes do you think they gravitate towards within those kinds of narratives? I suppose predominantly it's the the unusual, the wacky hmm. adventure, um, something something escaping norm because you 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 need that hook. You need to find something that will really kind of grab their attention. And I suppose generally when teaching history, irregardless of what it is you might be teaching, if you can find something in that topic that will that will just that will hook them essentially. That will grab their yeah. attention. Quite often, uh, if you can find something gross. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, they'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to kind of steer away a little bit with my some of my younger years, we're covering medieval history quite a lot. Mm. And you know, just so even even quite recently, I was teaching. Uh, I have quite a few year seven classes, so I find myself covering the same content a lot. But it's fine. I enjoy it. We were talking about what life is like in a medieval town. So I demonstrate to them that uh, in medieval towns, particularly for more poorer people, the use of a toilet was very uncommon. Uh, so I say to them, how do you think they got rid of their waste? And they're like, oh, oh, I don't know. And what I'd even do, I wouldn't even simply just tell them. I would kind of reenact it. So because of my classroom, I'm on the third floor. Right. I would just, I would go to the window, pretend I'm holding a bucket. And I'm like, right, oh, okay, <laughs> open the window and just like chuck it out. And they would go, what? That's, that's what they did. Like, yeah, that's what they would do. <laughs> and something I've done before on a very similar topic with medieval towns, treatment by doctors. So mm. I would introduce them to the concept that uh, examination of one's urine was a very common practice by medieval doctors. So to really kind of add to that gross factor, I would get a uh, glass of uh, apple juice. Not tell them that, of course. <laughs> and I say, so, right. And I, I did this last year, actually, where I got a student. I got a student volunteer. I said, right, he comes to the front. He did. And I said to him very discreetly, I said, okay, please don't worry. This is just apple juice. I said that to him. <laughs> no one else knew. And it was, I said to him, like, are you okay with drinking that? I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I was like, brilliant. Um, the rest of the students had no idea. I said, right, we have, our, you know, we have our doctor here, and he's going to examine his urine. Uh, so, so, so he acts it out. He started looking at it, you know, inspecting it in the, in the light. And I said, right, give it, give it a little sniff. And, everyone, and the students started to ask, oh, God, that's really gross. And I said to him, okay, doctor, please, can you, um, can you sample it? Can you drink a bit? And he actually did. He drank about <laughs> half a glass. And they, they were completely, uh, the students were just absolutely taken aback. What's, what's going on? What, what did you just, and I said to them, okay, don't worry. It's just average. But it's just, you do those kind of moments that kind of like more like interactive history, you could say, and the attention you can get, because if it, if it grosses them out, if it's, if it's unusual, if it's different, they remember it. Mm. And you know, you can mention it three weeks later, a month later. And I said, oh, what would doctors do? Like, oh, they drink urine. Yeah, a bit more to it than that, but it's the fact that they remember. It's the fact that that knowledge, that learning is is embedding within them, 
and that's, that's how I remember. If you can, you instead of just saying right, right, just do this, really finding those unique ways to hook their attention and the knowledge retention they have is, is fantastic. That's really quite inspiring. Thank you. I think I'll be incorporating glasses of apple juice into my my thoughts for quite some time now. <laughs> all right. I think that's just about all we've got time for today. So uh, thank you for joining us, Will. Is there anything you'd like to uh, plug for yourself before we round off for the session? I mean, I suppose just, I suppose I can say it's just, um, it's it's having, you know, being very new to teaching. I, I just want to say if you know, anyone listening to this is considering a career or a path in teaching it's it's certainly it's a very really enjoyable really enjoyable career that i'm only at the very beginning of i'm very much only early in my first year but the, the school i work in is is phenomenal really well supported i get to work with some really fantastic students many of whom share my enthusiasm for history and just, just to be in a job where i think what's quite nice is to be in a job where not only do i get to do it every day but i get to mm. explore different parts of history on a regular occurrence so Year seven, they're doing medieval. Year eight, they're doing early modern. Year nines are doing um, Germany, 20th century. Year tens are medicine through time, and they're just about to move on to Korea and Vietnam. And then I teach politics as well. I just have that that breadth of topics I get to cover on a daily basis. Just no no day is the same. Uh, every day is different, and I just it's it's a really really enjoyable career. So those who are considering it. It is a lot of work, but trust me, it is also a lot of fun as well. Thank you very much. It sounds really rewarding. Thank you. I love the way that you have managed to incorporate your many, many historical interests into your teaching. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Charting History Podcast. I've been Graham. I've had the pleasure of being here with Will Manthorpe, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charting History Podcast. This has been the story of the Pacific Discovery Voyage of Samuel Wallace and HMS Dolphin, featuring Will Manthorpe and myself, Graham Moore. If you want to talk to us about this episode and keep in touch with us here at the Charting History Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at ChartingHistPod. That's at ChartingHistPod. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode of the podcast, where we'll be talking to Jade Evans about Valerie Hobson and film stardom in the 1940s and 1950s. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.